0: I want to begin and get a running start with the book, if you will, where we're going. When Paul begins this, he addresses the saints in Ephesus. He's not writing to people in order for them to become Christians. He's writing to people who have become Christians, who already are saints. And it begins by reminding them, of the innumerable spiritual blessings that they have there are seven spiritual blessings listed from verse 3 to verse 13 it's not an all-inclusive list it's representative a few of which are to be accepted to be beloved to be to be redeemed to have the mystery revealed to us and to obtain an inheritance to have the earnest of the spirit according to the spirit of promise that we've had that has been given to them then paul prays this prayer in the latter part of Chapter One, basically asking God to open their eyes to give them greater spiritual discernment, greater insight to to God and to His word, and that they may know what is the hope of His calling the riches of His inheritance to in the saints, and the great power that works in us who believe like worked in Christ. E- that over to chapter 2 talking about when we were dead in trespasses and sins and and walked according to the prince of the power of the air the lust of this world and then brings it to a great crescendo with that one little word but God who is rich in mercy with the grace whereby he has saved us and then begins to unfold what what that grace means and how it is able how it enables us to be to be one with God He's broken down all partitions, broken down all things that that would keep us from having any access to God. He's opened access to God through Christ and enabled us to be one with Him. And then spoke about that great revelation. He said, when I gave it to you, I wrote it down and you read it, you understood it. And spoke about how the church was a declaration to the manifold wisdom of God. It was a declaration to the to the wisdom and the knowledge and the skill the handiwork of god when you see the church when you see that same relationship it says something about the wisdom of god and then close with that mighty power, prayer in the latter part of chapter three that you might know some things again he wants us to know about his love he wants to be strengthened with might in the inner man he talks about the immeasurable love of christ and to be filled with his fullness because he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think Now to him be glory in the church throughout ages. A great crescendo to that first part about all that God has done. He begins in chapter 4 with the practical side of the book. Because of what God has done, here's what you have a responsibility to do. You need to walk in love. You need to walk circumspect. You need to walk, walk in light. And you need to walk submissively with one another. And then he comes down after having talked about all the relationships of children, husband and wife, children, master, slave, all those things. He gives this great close in the book about finally, my brethren, finally. It's not like finally, oh, finally, you get there. It is finally. Let me, let me, let me give this great, great exclamation. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And that was not bland. That was powerful, what Paul said there if you have all that God has done for us, and if you have all the responsibilities we have, finally be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. There's some things that thread throughout the book before we begin in verse 10 that I think are significant to help us come to this place. He uses the word mystery in this book because there's something that is present in Ephesus with the goddess Diana. Diana. With the goddess Diana that fell from heaven they thought was the seventh wonder of the world at the time, and viewed her as a celestial blessing, an exalted blessing that had come to them, there were gradations of which you would come into a relationship with Diana, much like what, what you might see uh, among the, the Masons. You'd start out at an initial level, and what they would tell you is that initial level is, you have all knowledge until you graduate to the next level. Then they would say, well, we didn't tell you the complete truth there. Now you have all knowledge until you graduate to the next level. And then he would say, well, we really didn't tell you the truth there. Now you have the next level. But Paul said, here's the deal. I have revealed to you the mystery that God before had included the Gentiles in all he intended for man to be saved. And when you read it, you can understand it. You have to go through several graves to get there. There's no levels of this. When you read this mystery, it has been revealed to you. It's open to you. He'll use another expression throughout the book. Some four or five times you'll have this expression in the heavenly places, and he uses that here in chapter 6 as well. We'll see in just a moment. He's not talking about the domain. He's talking about things that are celestial, things that are high, things that are exalted. He talks about these spiritual blessings that are exalted blessings. They're heavenly blessings. It's not heaven itself. It's a declaration, a play on Diana having come from above, viewed as something celestial. Here are these celestial high blessings. They're called spiritual blessings. In chapter 6, he will talk about the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. He's not talking about principalities and powers in heaven. With God they're evil that are wicked he's talking about high places here are things I mean wickedness that is in high places they are ex- exalted and exalted among exalted rulers so he plays on that term too because Diana was thought to have fallen fallen from heaven He also play on this idea of grace because again in relationship to what they had with Diana It was something that they had to earn as they worked themselves up through the different levels. But he said, this is a gift to you. You didn't earn this. God's going to provide this for you. It's a blessing from God. And that will enable you to sit in an exalted place with him just as he sits in an exalted place as well at the right hand of God. So all that, he then comes and says, I want you to understand the, the value of all of what I've taught to you here. I want you to be strong in the Lord. Don't lose those things. Don't walk away from those things. You you have left that world. You once walked in that way, but no longer are you walking that way. Walk walk in love, walk in light, walk circumspectly. You be careful how you walk, and you, you be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And so we've walked our way through. Ephesians this month as we begin in chapter 6 as I've quoted a few times he begins in verse 10 finally my brethren be strong in the Lord the power of his might put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil but we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in high places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, ways with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to the end with all perseverance and supplication of all the saints, and as for me, that utterance may be given for me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought. I wonder how many times we've read that, we jump right to the armor that begins in verse 14 and miss the part that precedes that, that gives the predicate or the basis for that armor. And so I'd like to walk through this passage just a little bit with you this morning. When he talks about walking here, first of all, we need to go God's victory plan. There are three things about going the battle. Number one, we need to know who our adversary is. Number two, we need to know our assignment. And number three, we need to have the proper, the proper armament. And so when Paul begins to help us understand just who our adversary is, he helps walk us through that by helping us see in verse 12, For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Paul's right there. The battle we are involved in that Paul is, Paul is talking to these Ephesians here. By extension we're, we're, we're talking about us. but Paul's talking to these Ephesians. and he's telling the Ephesians, there's something you are wrestling with now. It's not something that you're going to wrestle with. Here's something you are struggling with now. It's not something taking place in heaven. It's taking place in high places, and this is how he says it. But we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the wiener of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host host of wickedness, in the high places. These are exalted. This is exalted darkness. This is darkness in high places. First thing, when you look at verse 10... Verse 12, I'm sorry. Paul does something that is peculiarly Pauline. A few things about Paul and his style of writing. You've noticed that he loves to run on. He loves commas. And he loves to have, have run on sentences, long run on sentences. But there's something else he does. He repeats himself a lot. And he just said the same thing three different ways in verse 12, just like he did in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Parents, you understand that. I remember a conversation that Jody was having with Cam one time. And Cam wasn't feeling good and having a headache. And early in the conversation, her mother said, well, you might take an Advil. A little bit later in the conversation, not long, she said, well, you might take an Advil. A little bit later in the conversation, she said, you might take an Advil. She said, Mom, after the first time, I took an Advil. We say over and over and over again for repetition to make the point, right? Well, that's just what Paul has done. When he talks about principalities and powers, evil in high places, evil wickedness here, he's talking about rulers. Who did Paul have a problem with? Paul didn't have a problem with the regular man. Paul had a problem with all the rulers. Who's he going to stand before? He's going to stand before Caesar. When the Lord called him, he says to Ananias, I have called him to preach to kings and queens and to preach to Gentiles. When Paul preaches before kings and queens, Felix, Festus, Agrippa, and Caesar himself. He's talking about the rulers in high places that are extremely wicked. You see that in the life of Christ. Who did Christ have a problem with? Did he have a problem with the man in the street? No. He had a problem with the ruling, the ruling class, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the hypocrites. He had a problem with those who were rulers of the synagogue. Caiaphas, Anna, and all those who pretend to be high priests, those are the ones he had a problem with. Rulers in high places leaders who occupied power, leaders who were evil. When you think about this, you go back to the book of Acts and you understand how this all began in Ephesus. Paul taught the gospel and converted a young lady who was selling silver idols to Diana. And the silversmith got upset about that and they are going to have him arrested, but there was also something else that was taking place. As he was casting a demon out of that young woman, the seven sons of Seba were there, and they'd been watching Paul. they have been stalking him. And they'd seen the work that Paul had done and the success he'd done of exercising demons from people, and so they're listening. And the thing that they keep hearing him saying over and over and over again with every time he exercises a demon is he says, in the name of Jesus ah, observant. And so they say, these are the magical words. And so if we say, in the name of Jesus, we too can exercise demons. And sure enough, they try it, and they say, in the name of Jesus. And the demon says, this is hilarious. The demon says, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? That's the beginning of the gospel there. He has that kind of that kind of adversary that he he, he experiences there. Paul spent a lot of time with these folks in Ephesus, probably more time than any other church in all the ones that he traveled about. We probably have more information about the church in Ephesus than any other church in the New Testament. He knew these people. He knew them well. Ephesus not only was a place of idolatry because of Diana, Ephesus also was a place of refuge that the Romans had set up as a city of refuge, which meant as long as you stay within both of the city, whatever you did you could not be prosecuted about what a marvelous wholesome godly place that must have been that's why when you hear in chapter 5 he talks about all that immorality that's there he's talking about things that they have right before them and so paul says i want you to understand something about the adversary this adversary is wicked and the adversary doesn't operate on a base level the adversary operates on a high level. Hold your finger there in Ephesians chapter 5 and turn, over, turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 just a moment. Because I think Paul uses the same language here, just talking about Corinth and the idolatry in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, look at what he will say in verse 3. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood. We do not war against the flesh. What do he say in chapter 6 and verse 10? Verse 11. Verse 12, he said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Then he will say, in verse 4, for our weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, every high thing that exalts itself, exalts, exalted, exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Who are the ones exalting themselves against the knowledge of God? Rulers in high places. He said, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, which is also what he says in chapter 4. Paul says, here's the deal. Our battle among the Ephesians, it's going on now. It's a spiritual battle. It's not a flesh and blood battle. Put your swords up. Get this sword out, the sword of the Spirit, and fight this battle here. He's wicked. He's powerful. He operates in the night. He knows no rules. These enemies who operate high places, No, no rules. There's no Geneva Convention here. There's nothing that says treat your enemy with respect. There's no code, no moral code here. And they operate in darkness. John will say in chapter 3, verse 19, they love to do that because then they're not seen, because light exposes the darkness. Light exposes what they're doing. They operate in darkness so that they're not seen, so that therefore they can deceive And furthermore, is cunning. Is cunning. He will talk about the wiles of the devil. You think about how the devil presents himself. The devil is indeed crafty. No pun pun intended. Sometimes he presents himself as a wolf in sheep's clothing. Sometimes he presents himself as a snake. Sometimes he presents himself as an angel of light, having been transformed into an angel of light. It'd be nice if there was one homogenous way that Satan presented himself. But Satan understands how to prey upon our weaknesses, and sometimes he's presented as a roaring lion, a paralyzing cry at a long time. He understands our discouragement. He understands our doubt. He plays on that. He's crafty. He's wily. And so you see, our adversary our adversary is powerful. Our adversary is wicked. And our adversary is cunning. We are involved in a spiritual battle. It would be nice if the adversary was always physical and in our face. We would know exactly who we're fighting because we could see them. Him or her. But instead, Satan operates and has a minion of forces that operate with him in high places among those who are exalted rulers. Now, if you look at the wickedness in this world today, where does the wickedness in our world today come from? High places. Top down. You see, decisions of world rulers, of world leaders, You see decisions of our leaders, of our rulers, and you see decisions they make that are deleterious, that are adversarial to being a Christian. They serve as people in high places that serve the purpose of Satan with their power, with their cunning, and with their wickedness. But it's not them that we're fighting. It's the spiritual wickedness that they use to operate with That's a battle for our hearts and for our souls. It's not a battle to win the flesh. If it's a carnal battle, we use carnal weapons. It's a spiritual battle. So we use spiritual weapons. Pause. I truly wish I had the power of persuasion to impress not only upon you but myself the importance of seeing the reality, the realness of this spiritual battle. It's not mythological. And because you can't taste it, feel it, touch it, smell it, and all those senses, because you can't see that, you can't experience it that way, does not mean the spiritual battle is not real. It's a battle. Here it is. Here's the battleground. Here's the prize. It's for our hearts. It's for our minds. And what the Lord says is, I want you to be strong, casting out every high argument and every exalted knowledge that you might bring every thought into captivity that you might be subject to me. That's real. But not only must know the adversary, must also know the assignment that he gives us. What is the assignment that our Lord gives us? First of all, he says, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. That's something the Lord provides for us. Here is something the Lord gives us. The Lord gives us his strength. His responsibility is to give us his strength. To give us his power. Our responsibility is to accept his strength and power. Look at this as it threads throughout the book. Look back at chapter 1. Look back at chapter 1. And look at what he will say in that third part of chapter 1, that prayer. He says, verse 19. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. What exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, talking to Ephesians, by extension, me and you, that exceeding greatness of his power that raised Jesus from the dead, that is to us, who believe, we who believe can experience the same power, the same strength that raised Jesus from the dead. That's what enables us to be alive. That's what enables us to be forgiven. That's what enables us to overcome the prince of the power of the air, the prince of darkness, the rulers of this world in high places. Because his strength that he gives to us, he provides for us, enables us to bring those things into captivity. So he says, be strong in the Lord. Here's something the Lord provides. The Lord provides this strength. Then look at chapter 3. Look at chapter 3. He will say that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Notice, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. It's not just his spirit, but in the inner man. Here's the inner of the inner man. To be strengthened with might. How, by knowing something, by letting Christ dwell in our hearts through faith, comprehending the love, why? Because here it is, he's able to do something. He knows he's not able to do a little bit, he's able to exceedingly, abundantly, above all we ask or think. You take the strength of Mr. Atlas, you take the strength of the strongest person you know, he's able to exceedingly, abundantly, above that. There's no strength or power greater or mightier than he is. And so he will say, be strong in the Lord. Here is the strength the Lord provides for us. Now, why does the Lord provide that for us? He says, back to chapter, five, chapter 6 now, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, that you can stand against. This idea of stand is interesting, though. Here You're in the midst of battle. In the midst of a battle, you don't sit and become passive. Standing is active. Standing speaks of maturity. Standing speaks of stability. So he says, here you be strong, the Lord, that you may be able to be strong, to be stable, to be sound, and to be mature. That you may be able to stand against the wiles, the evils of the devil. So last Sunday, the idol of America started at 5.30. The Kansas City Chiefs lined up against the San Francisco 49ers. And, to the love of Chase and Mike Nolte, the Kansas City Chiefs won. You know, we always pay a lot of attention to the quarterback, Purdy over holes, or maybe a running back, Pacheco or CMS. But that wasn't where the line and where the loss took place. You see, the San Francisco 49ers had the chance to win the game. But there was a problem. They forgot to block Chris Jones. And Chris Jones came through the line unabated and disturbed the pass of Purdy, and it fell to the ground. The purpose of the lineman, of the offensive lineman, is this. They're post- supposed to push the defense back, not let the defense in. And what he says here, you stand strong against the wiles of the devil. You take the offensive, and you push the adversary back. Now, think of that language when I quote this. Christ came to build his church, and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. He's not talking about a defensive position there. He's talking about an offensive position there. And what Paul is saying here is you stand strong, you take an offensive position, you take the gospel to the enemy and you push him back and you push him back and you be strong against him and furthermore you be strong to the end you can't quit at halftime if the Chiefs had quit at halftime the 49ers would have won the 49ers forgot to show up in the second half they lost you can't quit at halftime you have to keep active in the game you keep pushing back and pushing back, and pushing back. And so he says, you stand against the wiles of devil. Furthermore, he will say, and having taken up the whole armor of God, you may have done all to stand, stand therefore. So you stand, you stand, and you stand some more. You stand in his power, you stand in his might, you stand until the end, you stand against the adversary himself, you keep pushing him back. How do we win the battle we stand to the end in the power and the might that the lord provides for us it's not going to be some direct thing he's going to touch us and we're going to have it it's going to be through the spirit's power that he has provided for us in his word and in his people so when you've been prepared with the assignment to be able to stand he says now It's time to put on the armor. You see, you don't begin with the armor, you need to understand the assignment. All the armor is is to enable us to be able to stand. He talks about a belt of truth, a breastplate. He talks about a helmet. He talks about a shield. He talks about a sword. All those are offensive weapons. He's saying you take and here are the things that are being used to enable you to stand strong and pursue the fight against Satan himself. You have a belt of truth. What does a belt do? It Hold your pants up. You take and you gather everything you've got, and you tuck in that belt, and you cinch it tight because the belt of truth will hold and bind you there. You have that breastplate of righteousness that protects everything that's vital. You have a shield that, that, that fights off the fiery darts. You have the shield that begins to fight the things off as Satan begins to fire his fiery darts. You have the helmet of salvation that that is our hope, Paul said, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that protects our head, protects our mind, protects our thinking. But you got to have a sword. It's the Word of God. Notice how Jesus used it. Turn these stones into bread. It is written. Jump off this pinnacle. It is written. Bow down before me. It is written. Peter will say over and over again, It is written. It is written. There's the sword of the Spirit. It is written. And when we have Satan attacking us, we pull this out, we say, it is written. And we jab him with that. We take the initiative with the sword of the Spirit. It is written. That's our greatest defense. But then, we're not alone. Because he says, you pray about this. And you pray for me. And you pray for all the saints. In prayer, we enlist God as our aid. Oh, think about this. Think about this just a moment. We pray, we're we're, we're calling upon God and the host of the Lord's army. Just one thing for you, real quick. You remember when Elisha is there with his servant? And the servant is just overcome because he looked and he sees Sennacherib and the Assyrian troops on the mountain top the rim about them, and he says, All those that are against us are greater than those that are with us. Because He sees 185,000 Assyrian troops and two of us. Odds are against us. Elisha says, Lord, pull back the veil. And when he pulls back the veil, the servant, still observant, says, those that are with us are greater than those that are against us. You see, when we pray to God, we're enlisting his strength. We're calling upon the strength he provides, but also the captain of the host, Michael, and the Lord's army to be able to fight for us. Explain that. I will as soon as you explain the wind. I know what it says. That's all I know. That's the sword. He's fighting with and for us. But then he says all the saints. It's not just God we're calling, we're enlisting. We're enlisting all of God's people. And then Paul says, "For me, that I may that I may speak with boldness the word of God." And so then he closes with this, "But that you may know the affairs how I am doing." Tychicus, my beloved brother, faithful in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I sent to you for this purpose that you may know our affairs, that he may comfort our hearts. Finally, he says, I want you to be comforted by the things I've told you here. What a crescendo. What a powerful end, this majestic letter that he gives. He says to them, with all the fight that you have that you're facing yet Satan in Ephesus, you can be strong and you can win. And as you and I read that, and we put our names in that place, while he's not writing to me and you today, he's writing for us today. He's saying, that hasn't changed. You can win too. The battle's real. But the strength of God is greater. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Then as the song said, this fight on the Lord's side, so we'll win. That this morning, you find yourself in sin and need salvation. By his blood, you can be redeemed and you can be forgiven. You can be accepted. And you can be adopted. Because his blood enables you to be cleansed of your sins. But you respond by faith. Because you've changed your mind about God and changed your mind about sin. And you've come to cry to all, Jesus is my Lord. Please save me. And you're immersed in water and had your sins washed away to live a newness of life as a new man with a new mind and new purpose. Which is exactly what he says in chapter 4. We talk about putting off and putting on. You've changed minds. And now that new mind puts in place a new man that's been cleansed of sin. And we can help you. Please come while we stand up, while we sing. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at, the questions at the We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.